This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. The most important thing that you can do as a project manager in the engineering world is to be proactive at every single phase of your project. And in today's episode, I have with me geographic discipline leader of project management at Collier's Project Leaders, Richard Brown. Rich has a host of experience in project management. He's going to share ways that you can be proactive in every single phase of the project, which is ultimately going to save your client and your organization time and money. Let's jump right in with Rich. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest on to the show for today. Richard Brown is the Geographic Discipline Leader of Project Management at Collier's Project Leaders. Rich, welcome to the Engineering Project Management Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, Anthony. So Rich, let's just start off. Maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your career journey in construction. After graduating college, I was fortunate enough to uh, jump right into the, a lot of the construction side. Two firms I work with generally overall, but we had all types of projects. I've been very fortunate to work for some high profile projects relative to Prudential Center in Newark. I did hospital expansion for Virtua and, you know, admin buildings, courthouses. I did a very large courthouse in Union County and as well as public, a lot of private projects. Now more so than ever, it seems like we're building a lot of warehouses in New Jersey. But for the most part, you know, I've been involved from pre-planning through design to bidding, construction, and closeout. And, you know, some of the projects are small and we have a couple of projects that we've done just recently, a couple hundred million. So uh, we've been involved in all types of projects and sizes. So we've been fortunate to, and plus to be busy. That's great. So Rich, tell us about like your specific role as, you know, the discipline leader of project management. Are you like overseeing how project management works within the firm? Like what does that entail? So as part of the Kyers Engineering and Design overall group, you know, so we have a discipline now that's called project management. And so my team is a 140 person group strong. We have people from all the way up in Maine, all the way down to Washington. And there's a geographical discipline leader in majority of the offices. I'm going to say there's probably close to 20. And so my role and responsibility is to manage, you know, these projects, the ones that we have. I have a 
team of six people in New Jersey that's continuing to grow. And so, you know, we have quite a few projects now on the public side, more so than the private, but they're exciting projects. And so the team that we have integrates with some of the CED people on a few of the projects, you know, we're, they're the design entity on probably right now we're working with them on six or seven projects. And on the other side, we're working with other design teams that are outside of the CED world. So we have a lot of, a lot of exciting things going on right now. That your team in New Jersey, let's say the six or so people, are they doing like primarily project management? That's what they do? Yep. So it, most of the team that I have, they're either architects, engineers, construction managers. It's mainly that background. They're generally not necessarily licensed. It's not. It's just that they've taken a decision in a course that's a little different than wanting to become a PE or a licensed architect and and wanting to manage projects. And it's exciting. We have them working at all different levels. And I try to match up some of their skill set to some of the projects. You know, as an example, we have have a very large commitment and in Princeton University, and we have three people working up there, and uh, they're doing a $8 billion expansion over the next 10 years. And so they just got a lot of moving parts. And I have, you know, a few team members up there that are managing parts of their project where they just don't have the capacity to handle those projects. So it's great. And just ballpark, Rich, in terms of the number of people under the CED employees, what's the ballpark number? For the CED overall company with all the departments, and uh, I think it's right around now 2,700 people we have, and I think it's around 75 employees. We just had our holiday party last weekend at Atlantic City, and Kevin Heaney announced another um, acquisition that we had another architectural firm in New Jersey, smaller one. And the reason I'm asking some of these questions, because it's interesting, because in this industry, I find that there is a point where a firm gets to a certain size and they do have dedicated project managers. I see in a lot of the smaller firms, like you're an engineer or you're an architect and you manage projects, right? So you're still doing like a little bit of everything. But we have worked with some firms that are getting to the point where they say, hey, we're pretty large now. And we got really large projects and we really need a couple of dedicated project managers. So it's good to hear you talk about, hey, I have a whole department now of people that can manage projects because I do think when you get to these mega projects, like some of the ones you referenced, it's a full-time job. I mean, easy. It isn't. And Anthony, on some of these, so half of the projects that we're working on are projects where they're larger CED projects. And it just makes sense because we have the skill set in my team. We can manage these better than and let the people that design them stay on that side. The other 50% of the projects that we're working on now are projects where there's an RFP that comes out, whether private or public, and we respond. And it's just a, a role of you're providing construction management, project management for the, the state, for the DPMC. It could be for a county to build a new administration building or a library. So some of them are sort of standalone CM, PM, and then the other ones are sort of an add-on or a piece of one of the CED you know, projects itself, which is good to have both those options. It's helpful. And just for those of you listening, just to be clear, like when Rich has CED, it's Collier's Engineering and Design, like the engineering and design teams and other design professionals whereas the project leaders kind of operate under, it's all under the same umbrella really, but kind of maybe different subgroups or different companies. But ultimately they're able to work back and forth on projects. And it's nice, as Rich said, to have the different professionals and disciplines all kind of 
under one roof, if you will, to be able to make that process easier. Yes. It's nice to share resources too, because if, you know, if they need some help or support, we can lend people over and vice versa. You know, we win something quick and we need some help. You know, we have skilled people that they may be engineers and that's not what they do every day, but they certainly have the ability to sort of transfer over to help, you know, rather easily. What criteria do you consider crucial when you're selecting designers for a project? And how do you kind of ensure that that designer's vision is really aligning with the practical aspects of construction, which are not always necessarily eye to eye? We hope to be involved in a project through the early pre-construction, through the design. And if that happens, you know, we generally help an owner put together an RFP. We sort of handpick, you know, what architects and teams that we know that are certainly capable of doing a project. And uh, what happens on occasions, we'll get these, you know, the proposals back. They're all great. They're outstanding. And so what we always recommend to the, you know, the individuals we work for is let's do an interview because they're, they're great proposals or we wouldn't have even asked them for one. But the reason I'm bringing this all up about, you know, on your question, Anthony, about a design selection is a designer selection is, is what has happened on a few times is that the team that they bring together may not have the requisite experience for, I'll use an example from the high rise. The a company itself has done high rises because this happened in Jersey City for us. And uh, the team that was there didn't really have that experience. And as an owner and as us sort of managing that process, we don't want a team or a group of people learning or cutting their teeth on a project that is, it comes with a little few complications. So um, the team that we were expecting to hire because of their, you know, just inability to have previous work like that, we, we made a switch and hired the second rank team. So it's important, you know, that a lot of times if you don't go through that process, sometimes it, you know, it gets overlooked and that could become a problem. We work closely with that kind of stuff. And obviously it's ideal if you as the construction professional can get involved early on at the design stage, right? So you can have that interaction with the designer, get to talk to them, learn about them, and that can save a lot of time down the road. And, you know, I think there's a real interesting parallel or analogy here that we deal with a lot with consulting firms when we do our project management training programs. When we look at the phases of a project, sometimes the project manager will get involved in the proposal stage, but in some firms they won't because they have a business development group that's cranking out proposals. And the challenge with that is, of course, as you know, is that you get a project and you, hey, you're going to manage this project. And you say, well, I didn't even get to scope it. Who came up with the scope? Who came with the fee? You know, now I got to make it happen. It's a very similar process, I think, what you're talking about. Whereas if an owner is approaching a project and is, doesn't have that construction professional on board yet, and they go ahead and get the designer on board without them, that could cause some problems if the owner is not clear on, there's a good designer. Do they have the experience down? You know, And then they hire this designer and then you have to work with them and they're not really the right designer for the job. They're going back and forth. Someone in their office has all the experience because they have the resume to support it, their company resume. That team that has the staff and the utilization and they have the ability to do this project design for the next nine months, they may not have it. It might be their first one. And and that will definitely cause some challenges along the way. You know, for the owner, you want somebody who's done 14 of those or maybe even 12 of them, but you don't want somebody who's doing theirs. This is their first high rise. I'm using it as an example. It can be a hospital. It can be any, you know, project specific. That's not a, just a general building, class A or something simple. You understand. One topic that we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast is constructability reviews. Could you walk us through the process of a constructability review and kind of talk about how 
These reviews can really impact the overall project timeline and budget. Even in a proposal, if we get a, an RFP and it's not in there, we really make sure that it's in there and spell out what it really does. And it even flows over to some level for value engineering, right? Having done this for many years and, you know, like I said, my team, they're all architects, they're all engineers. So when we get to say a 95% set of plans, right, we'll really look at it and we'll look at the documents for completeness because at the end of the day, this constructability review will dictate to some extent future change orders, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, if it's missing some level of detail that might be gray or it might be a detail that's actually complicated. And we've seen different architects use different approaches to that sort of similar detail. We'll flag it and we'll put a couple notes on there. We'll probably have, you know, maybe a note or two on the however many pages, you know, whether it's a simple project or it could be a complicated, you know, $50 million project. But all of these notes, we, we go back and we sit down with the design team and, you know, here's what we see. And they might do these certain designs. I'll use like a, a roofing detail. And they may or may not have issues in the previous, but with our team seeing so many different designs, so many different architects doing that sort of similar detail, we say, well, you know, maybe taking a look at it from this perspective, we think that this there's a less costly approach. And so they look at it and it could be also where it has like missing information that could potentially be a change down the road, especially if it's a public project where the plans have to stand, you know, alone. So all of those elements are so important. We sit down with them, we have a working session with the design team. And for the majority of the time, there's no egos involved. They enjoy it. They're like, you know, listen, these are a lot of great notes and, and they incorporate them. And it really is a huge benefit of especially for the owner at the end of the day, when we get into construction and we may eliminate half of the potential change order, which is not really a good way to recognize that. But I've seen a huge difference on when we have a good set of plans at the end of the day, that way, you know, there's another peer review looking at them. And I can tell you one other thing, Anthony, is that recently we were engaged for a project. We weren't involved in the pre-con, the design, but I made a recommendation. I'm like, how about if we do one? It was a like a $12 million new library. The owner said, yeah, sure. We were breaking ground. This was our first project with them because they've used the same entity, the same CM for a decade or two. And so we came back, new architect, we didn't have a relationship with, and same thing happened. We came back to them with a whole bunch of notes and recommendations. And the architect couldn't have been happier. He was just ecstatic that, you know, we had all these notes on here. And the same thing with the owner. They're like, that. this is not what the other guys did. And now the project is 30% in. You have a change order here or there, but it's been substantially minimized from that. I think that that's such a huge benefit. I mean, I'm talking as a design professional myself, and a lot of our listeners are design professionals, is that it really behooves you to reach out to the construction professional on the owner's side if they're available and ask them to do the constructability review because ultimately you're both serving the same client, right? So you both want the job to go as smoothly as possible. And if you finish your design plans 100% without a constructability review and you go to construction and there's all kinds of changes because of your design, I mean, it's not going to look good on you as the design professional. And you're actually going to look really smart if you say, hey, let's reach out to a construction professional and get them to look at it now ahead of time. Exactly. I mean, a good analogy is just an everyday analogy. If you're getting an addition on your house and you get an architect to do some kind of elaborate, crazy design because you want it, 
but that hasn't been vetted with a contractor that's going to come and build the addition, right? You're going to get the contractor and the contractor is going to say, I can't build this. This is not even buildable, right? So now you got to start back at square one, right? Yeah. It really makes sense for all parties involved in this equation. And it's really a value add for everybody because the client will be happy. The construction professionals will be happy that the project's going smoother. And the designer, you're not going to have to go back and rework your plans. Yeah. Probably 80% of the projects we work on, we do this whether we're getting paid or not. It's not a heavy exercise. It pays huge dividends and it's everyone's benefit. Yeah. Like you said before, your client was thrilled. It's probably a great business development activity, right? Because you do it even if you don't charge them for it. Let's just say the next time around, they're going to say, hey, we got to get those guys back. They did a great constructability review. They saved us a ton of money. And it's just like a way of like serving your clients, right? As best as you can. Exactly. But in some instances too, with what we do, a lot of projects don't, you know, they're like, I don't know, you know, CM, we can try this without them, but I can tell you. So we're an added cost to a project. But when you do these things that will ultimately save money overall, you know, the likelihood is we're going to save our fee just by performing this exercise. The first couple of projects, they're not necessarily buying in, but after you do this one or two times for them, they're like, I'm never going to do a project without either you know, Rich Brown and his team or or anyone, you know, that does this, the same service. Yeah. And I think what a lot of the clients in our industry, it's like time is money, right? So if the changes are driving the schedule to be longer, that that's just costing them more money than whatever they're going to pay for a review or some of the work, right? So that's an important part of it. So Rich, how do you approach planning site logistics and phasing in your construction projects? On a lot of projects, if we're not there and we've come in a couple of them where it doesn't exist and then you get a lot of assumptions that are made by bidders and it usually gets everybody in the adversarial situation right out of the gate. When we're there, we do constructability reviews and we're helping with the design selection. This is a main thing that we, that we throw into the whole equation, right? Because it could be a phase project where you're going to be doing um, renovations to what over, you know, in the south area of a, a wing of a school could be you're doing an addition over here. And so there's a lot of moving parts in the building. The school has to still remain open except for the summers, again, using that sort of approach. Putting together some site logistical plan where there's going to be the area where you can put trailers and have your occupied area. Maybe this could be parking. And so having going through all this exercise and analysis with the end users and with the, you know, the administration putting it all down on paper so that when the bidders get design documents, and this is part of that, it really illustrates already what they can do, what they can't do, how the phasing is, how um, the parties are segregated so that everybody's safe and all of that. And I've been inherited projects without that level of site logistics and phasing. And, and it could be a narrative, but you know we like to put it on a site plan or whatever the case and say it. Uh, this is when you put, when you develop your bid, this is what you need to understand. You're not going to get, you know, a hundred percent of a parking lot or, or an area in the back. You're going to get 30% of it, but we'll be able to adjust it based on the following thing. So the projects where that doesn't take place are usually a disaster out of the gate. And it's, it, you, you know, you think, well, how important that can be, but it, it truly does get a project off, either off on the right, you know, wrong foot or, or you're set up and running right out of the gate. And a phasing plan is something that can either be done by the designer and reviewed by your team or your team could prepare one? Absolutely. So as an example, we've done a project, there was three different phases 
we bid it that way. We'll give them milestones and dates and, and you know, what areas they can work on. Because sometimes, especially, I, I kind of tend to gravitate back to schools because they can become the more complicated because of the timelines. And we tell them this is the area you can have from June to September because obviously school's out. And then subsequent to that, when school returns, you can do these areas, but it has to be second shift. And so all of that really has to be put together. And the design team can certainly, whether it's us or whether it's design team, they can do all that. But a lot of times, if you don't have people that have done this time and time again, same thing with even the designers, it becomes very complicated. And we've had projects where it becomes an issue because none of that was spelled out to them. So they made assumptions that obviously they were looking at doing things quicker, faster, but it wouldn't work into the interaction of what the school's programs were. It's, so it gets, it's a little challenging, but if you do your homework first and lay it all out, it's not. Rich, what are some of the common challenges that are encountered in obtaining construction permits and how can you navigate them? That's always something that can be a real schedule driver, getting the permits. One thing that we always do is what will generally the construction, the, the uh, permitting department will let us go down, especially if it's a public project, because they're always there to, to some extent, help. Not all of them are um, extremely helpful, but the majority of them are. So what we'll do is we'll go down before there's a permit even needed. We'll go down and ask for a cursory review. And so, you know, we'll say, here are our documents. We're 90% done. Can we come down? Can we, you know, give us, a, you know, 45 minutes of your time and just show your, you know, your sub-officials, some uh, code officials. And most of them will do that because number one, it helps them be more aware of what's coming on the horizon. And they can be helpful too. They'll, sometimes they'll even give us feedback on certain aspects of some codes for fire, you know, something that's unique that maybe has changed recently from a code perspective. And getting them sort of engaged into the project is extremely helpful so that when, you know, we go out to bid and we get the bids back and now it's time to send in signed, you know, signed and sealed plans and they go down and file their jackets and it's time to get building permits. They've already been acclimated with the project and it's extremely helpful. And I've done that on a couple occasions, done everything right. And it has still been complicated in certain municipalities. Won't name them at the moment, but it, some of them are just more challenging. That's just the reality of sometimes it can be too, because they're just super busy. Maybe, you know, the, from a staffing standpoint, it's difficult. We even had one, Anthony, where we knew that the building department was not going to be able to handle the capacity because we had a very large program coming. So we went down to them, we met with them, we sat. And we said, would you be opposed that we bring in a third party to do this? The owner would pay for it out of their pocket because we didn't want to get into a situation where we were waiting three days for a rough-in permit to close walls. And uh, they said, thank you for that option. Let's keep that as a plan B if things happen or, or fall behind. We didn't need to do it, but they were very appreciative that we didn't want them to be in a position where both parties were failing. But they stepped up and kept up with us. It sounds to me, Rich, like kind of the running theme here through our conversation so far has been proactive communication. If you can get involved to help select the designer, that's very helpful. If you can get involved to do the constructability review before the designer is 100% done, that's very helpful. 
getting involved with the phasing ahead of the project, you know, as early on in the project as you can. And, and then again, the permits, meeting with the code officials ahead of a permit application to kind of field them out and make sure we're headed in the right direction, which overall I think is really good because when you're dealing with multi-million dollar projects, one mistake can be very catastrophic in terms of dollars. So the more planning and the more you can get ahead of these things is very valuable. And that's why when we do our programs and when we meet with PMs, we're always telling them the planning phase of your project is super critical because it's going to save you in the back end a tremendous amount. And that seems to be kind of a good theme here today. And you know what happens too is that a lot of places will say, well, you know, especially when it comes to our role, the PM, they'll say, well, but I have an architect, I have an engineer, I have all the people I need. They can do this. But the reality is the things that we're talking about they might do part of it, but they don't do all of it. And, you know, they could they add it to their proposal? Sure. But they probably, they might be higher than the other guys that don't do it. So it always comes back to, especially like this, you know, our fees are terribly high. So, you know, spend a little bit of money to make sure, like you said, that the communication and that effort from, you know, almost that third party at the table, this makes a huge difference. Rich, let's talk a little bit about scheduling. How do you maintain effective schedule management on these construction projects? And maybe you can give me some insights or tools or techniques that you found to be effective for keeping projects on track. As I said earlier, we have small projects with very unsophisticated contractors. And then we have hundreds of million dollars of projects where they have scheduling in-house experts. They're using P6, you know, some very elaborate programs, right? So- Each project, you have to look at a little bit differently. Generally speaking, the unsophisticated guys, you're usually helping them develop some logic, some putting it together that makes, you know, some sense. You know, you tell us how you envision building it will help you develop that document because they're mostly harmless, but we're helping them succeed. You know, at the end of the day, part of our role is to help people succeed. So those are relatively easy. When you get to the more complicated projects, you have two different approaches. One is the the contractor who, again, is top-notch, wants to do a good job, wants to get in and get out and make money. And so those ones, you know, you kind of just monitor and you really watch and, you know, get the reports, some monthly updates and, you know, what changed? Why did it change? Did we slip? If we did slip, what can we do to bring something back, you know, as it relates to from the baseline to the, the critical path and what that looks like? But there's that third group where they've developed schedules that are really, to some extent, sort of the first document that you can get that lays out you know, a possibility for a claim. There, you know, a, On occasions, we've had a couple contractors that will develop a, a schedule and hypothetically, you get an RFI that changes the layout of a bathroom. And bathroom that's isolated, that really isn't on the critical path, could be at the end if, you know, to catch up to some of the other pieces of the project. But they have that and they try to utilize that as a delay claim because we had to, you know, equipment wasn't going to fit in there. Some of the, you know, toilets and you know, was a meeting code and barrier free, all that kind of good stuff. And so the schedule, they try to use it against you, build a case for, you know, some of the claims. So that's when our team really has to pay much closer attention to that. And we do that and we do a really good job at it, but you have to understand, you know, who's using the, the schedule because it, it's a tool to build the job and who's using the schedule as a tool to maybe work to a, some level of a claim down the road. But we've seen both and we're prepared to handle both, but you got to understand what their goal is. It's important. 
And for those of you out there that are maybe new PMs and you, maybe you're not familiar with the term critical path, just to give you a window into that, the critical path is basically your longest path on the schedule of your project. And it's the soonest that your project can be completed. So if you delay any task on that critical path, you're delaying your project overall. And a nice example I like to give people is if you're planning an international vacation and you don't have a passport, getting a passport's on your critical path. Because if you don't get your passport, you can't get on the plane, your trip gets delayed. Whereas, you know, if you think maybe you want to get a new piece of luggage before the trip, you can kind of do that at any time. And if you don't get it, you have your old luggage. It's not a critical, it's not going to delay your trip if you don't get it done. And so to Rich's point, just generally speaking in project management, if you're in a bind with your projects, the first thing you want to do is look at your critical path, right? Because that's where you can really make your money up if you can get that critical path adjusted or accelerate something on the critical path. And so to Rich's point, I mean, there's all kinds of software that people use. You could Some people use a spreadsheet. Some people might use like a P6 or Primavera product, right? And, you know, in some of the large projects, having a dynamic schedule on a software can obviously be invaluable because things change a lot and it'll automatically update things for you. Whereas on a sim- more simplistic project, that's probably overkill and you'll probably spend more time trying to screw around with a dynamic schedule and just having a simple Gantt chart to get your project done. So like Rich said, it's really variable from project to project, contractor to contractor, depending on the projects. But definitely as a PM, you want to really get good at scheduling because you know that's really like the heart of your project that you're going to use to monitor the success of your project. And so we've seen that as a kind of a, a danger point for PMs if they're not good at that. Anthony, we've even, because of some of the difficulties we've had over the years, you know, so We've developed a division one, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with. It's, you know, it gives you how to submit RFIs and submittals and all the pay applications and all that. But as it relates to the schedule, we really put together a very defined part of it relative schedule. And the piece that really has paid dividends for us as when a contractor, if there's any type of slip on the critical path, as you mentioned, we have a recovery process that we look at and, you know, we don't let it get too far out of hand because once we start to see something in a slip anywhere more than like a week or two, then we have a sit down and we go through it and why is it happening? How can we correct it? And we have them provide a recovery schedule. And it could be something that the owner changed, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's their performance or lack thereof. So there's all types of issues, but at the end of the day, we still have to get to the finish line to get the building open or whenever it's needed. Let's go from schedule management more to, you know, budget or financial management. What would you say are some of the key aspects of financial management and construction projects? And, you know, how do you kind of balance budget constraints with that need for like quality and efficiency, right? Because those are all important things. When a project, once we get into construction and it's inevitable, you know, you're going to, something's got to come up and I'm going to, you go just hit the change order sort of aspect initially. We look at it closely. When I mean closely, I mean we will dissect it, even if it's very fair change order that comes in, right? And we're at the end of the day, we've already done our own cost estimate parallel to it. But the reason I'm getting a little into the detail with this is, is that we, maybe it's, you know, hope because, you know, with many of the building projects, everything's lump sum. So we don't have the luxury of using a unit price to, you know, to make the adjustments two different directions or whatever the case. It needs to, and we, we spell this all out in our bid documents and, and even at the kickoff meeting, if, if there's going to be a change, we want to see all the labor, the rates, the hours by the crew, the material. We want to have um, what from the, you know, wherever the place you're going to purchase the new the chain, 
and any of equipment if it requires a lift or whatever the case. And most importantly, if it's a net change, the credits, you know, because a lot of times, very seldom is a change order not accompanied by uh, something that we're not doing now versus the added work. And really push back hard on that. And I tell my teams all the time, I'm like, well, why do we do that at the beginning of our project? Because if you don't set the standard of what you, the expectation, it's a $5,000 change. It's no big deal. But the reality it is the next one might be larger. And if, if you set a tone where you're not going to really do an, a, an evaluation and assessment very thoroughly, it's going to bite you, you know, down the road on, on a lot of the aspects of the project. But an example is, you know, on a lot of projects, it could be, we see a lot of changes on the MEP systems and buildings. And as you know, the majority of that's up, up in the ceilings. And so there's generally a lift on the project and you'll get a change order where there's a lift included or like you were already using the lift, you know, regardless of this change that needs to come off. So, you know, working with all of that, all of those elements and really managing the budget, we have some pretty sophisticated programs that we use to manage all that, to keep everything aligned. A lot of the owners are, you know, they want to say, you know, if you're, if you're running at two, two and a half percent in change orders, they're like, well, how are we there? Well, you know, we have it even to the categories of, it could be scope change that the owner requested. It could be a field condition. It could be the building department asked for something. It could be a design or an omission. You know, one of, I mean, they, it all happens. We're very aggressive with projecting. If, if an RFI comes in and we see that it may have an implication of a cost, my team will put that off to the side as a hold for what may be coming down the road. So that, you know, before the owner's like, well, I can't believe I just got, you know, this chain. Well, we already had an idea that it was going to be a value to it. So sometimes you have to give bad news, but you don't wait to give it to people. Ultimately, it'll, it'll be there. So just be proactive about it. And even sometimes, Anthony, maybe you can work around things where, you know, this change where you can minimize it by reversing the design a little bit and cutting back some other element. So there's always... The budgets are very tight and, you know, we only have a finite amount of money that we need to figure out a way to maybe make some other adjustment to offset that budget cost. We're covering, obviously, the critical components of project management here, scheduling, budgeting, but it's all good stuff. All right, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with Rich and we'll just wrap up with our PM pitfall segment. We'll be right back. We are back with Rich Brown. Rich is the discipline leader of project management at Collier's Project Leaders. We've talked a lot about project management from the construction side of it, tying it back to the design side of it. So Rich, in all of your experience in project management, what would you say is one of the more common PM pitfalls and how might a project manager either avoid or kind of minimize this pitfall? The projects themselves generally, you know, with the design documents and and all those elements, they're relatively the same. But what happens is the contractors and the, the elements that they bring to the table with a different level of their approach, you know, some of them are more, you can work with them a little bit better. Some of them are more, you know, agitated and they're just looking to make money. But, you know, being prepared and understanding what those individuals are, or what their, you know, goals are and having a team prepared for any of that. We've had projects where we, you know, we, when the contractor gets awarded the project, we know in, in advance what to look for, whether he's going to be 
problematic. He's going to cooperate. And so we gear our style of management around that. Listen, we get paid to deal with the, the ones that are easier to work with and the ones that are harder to work with, but really understanding and being prepared for whatever the case may be. And uh, sometimes they're not so fun, but it's okay. We get to the end. We, it, the project gets done. It's all good. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that is really, to me, one of the biggest variables in project management is people. I mean, you deal with all different types of people, different contractors, different designers, architects, engineers, scientists, surveyors, et cetera. And over your years in the business, you need to get to know these people, get to know how to work with people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, and that's going to play a huge impact in your project management. I always tell people that the biggest misnomer about project management is that the word people is not in that phrase, project management. And everyone says like, it's scope, it's schedule, it's budget. Yeah, it's all those things. But in order to manage those things, you're going to have to interact with a lot of different people. So knowing that ahead going in is big. And it's not one size fits all because they're all different. And I tell my staff all the time, I'm like, some people are motivated differently. Sometimes you're nice to a group of, you know, like this architect or, or this contractor. The other ones you got it, you got to ride a little bit harder because it's not a one size fits all. And so until you kind of sort of find what motivates them and takes their excuses away, because we don't be on a project and are like, well, I only can do this. I, you know, I, I got another project going. I, I only have three guys I can get here to, you know, electricians. And it's like, that's not my problem. Your other project, this is the one that you dedicated to. You've got a schedule in order to maintain it. I need six guys here for the next three weeks. So again, taking their excuses away and figuring out how to motivate them. And it's not easy all the time. Rich, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Engineering Project Management Podcast. We went over a lot of really good stuff today. We do appreciate the time. Thanks, Anthony. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rich. It's always great to have someone on the construction side of projects because the relationship between the design and construction professionals with the client, of course, in the mix is critically important to the success of the project. And I really loved the theme of proactivity that Rich kind of spoke to throughout the conversation today. Please remember that you can find all of the episodes for the podcast at engineeringpmpodcast.com. That's engineeringpmforprojectmanagementpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering project management endeavors. 